Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Gimme the Creeps with Abby and Daniela. Hello, hello. We are on part two of the Martin Luther King series that I'm doing, and um, I'm just going to go ahead and jump in because it's a whole lot of information again. And uh, the layout is going to be similar to last time where I'm going to list out the historical events in chronological order and then pivot to what Martin Luther King was doing during uh, that time. And then we are going to hit the FBI part of this. Okay. Siri was like uh, activated, so I had to <laughs> unactivate her. Sure Anyways, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> She's like, I know things. Anyway, okay, so to reiterate, Martin Luther King Jr. not only helped the, bi- the black community have civil rights, but he established a moral code of what it means to be an American, and that is advocating for those who are not yet equal in this country. He fought for human rights. I know we skipped over early African-American history, including the Jim Crow laws. I skipped over the brutality Black Americans faced and how the community was expected to remain calm and do as they were told. But I hope that we know how ugly that was and how it hasn't been that long since freedom was achieved. Getting started now, in terms of events, the civil rights movement slash history refresher portion. Um, We bookmarked the year 1957, but before we pick up there, I wanted to answer the question that we had Um, for me from the last time, the answer to the military being segregated. Oh, okay. So I looked into it and uh, it goes back to the Tuskegee Airmen that we mentioned last time and how they were black pilots, navigators, and bombardiers. uh, Bombardiers. Bombardiers who (laughs) contributed. Is that how you say it? Bombardiers. Yes, bombardiers. Cool. Across the universe. Oh, I have not seen that. Cute. What? I, I know. Okay. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> You're big into the Beatles. Um, I know that. But um, let's see. So the airmen who contributed their talent to the World War II efforts. During this time, the airmen decided to fight segregation in the military through nonviolence. In the Indiana Freeman Field Mutant Spring of 1945, after putting up with years of discrimination and inadequate facilities, 101 officers were arrested. They were in the all-black 477th Bombardment Group of the Army Air Force. They had um, initially trained in Alabama at the Tuskegee Air Army Airfield. They were arrested when they refused to sign a base regulation requiring separate officers' clubs, and they had tried to enter the white club before this um, became something that they had to sign. 61 black officers were arrested for trying to go to the whites club. The African-American officers called their clubhouse Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was a separate equal Uh, a separate but equal ideology that was not equal. The excuse was that they were trainees and the whites were the only officers who were considered instructors. It was a way to create a social class or hierarchy without breaking any laws with segregation. So when groups began going into the white club, they couldn't be removed and they were promptly arrested. They were held for 12 days and were released with a um, reprimand on their records. The NAACP um, the Na- and the National Urban League and the Black Press had pressured them to release the airmen. Um, so yeah, that's that was a big event. And in 1957, Black <laughs> voters were able to vote. However, they were given literacy tests, especially in Southern states. They made it almost impossible to get uh, to vote. I think I skipped over something. Let me jump to the history.com link that I went to for the Tuskegee airmen. The outcome of that was um, obviously they gained a lot of awareness or they, they, you know, made the public aware of them being arrested, which prompted the press to urge their release. Um, So oh yeah, okay, so they had, in order to get into the white club, they came in like groups at a time, like five or six airmen. And so they were blocked from coming in, but then others behind them would come through. So before no time, there was like a group of black airmen in the white clubhouse. And so that's why it was like an issue, whatever. They couldn't get them all to leave. Um, the 
At a strategy session a few days before the start of the Freeman Field sit-ins, the officer, Lieutenant Coleman A. Young, uh, and a group of Black officers decided to use nonviolent action to enter the White Officers Club in small groups so it wouldn't appear coordinated. They were prepared for our arrival, expecting trouble. MPs were there to keep us out of the club the night we arrived, said Young, who later became the first Black mayor of Detroit. We were going to scatter, play pool, get a drink, and buy cigarettes. The white captain says, you can't come in here. We just brushed past him and scattered. The commanding officer was livid and placed us under arrest at quarters. Young, who recounted the episode in an interview with oral historian Studs Turkle, went on to say that uh, it was his responsibility to convince the others to continue with the plan. After the first nine, it was tough getting the next nine, but we broke the ice and two more groups came in and were placed under arrest. They wanted to put us in a position of disobeying and post-command. So then base regulation 85-2 happens, um, with the exception of three officers charged with jostling a white commanding officer. At the officers club, Young and 57 other officers who were arrested were released to their quarters on April 9th, four days after the start of the sit-ins, but Hunter and Selway doubled down on their racist policies by issuing Base Regulation 85-2 to strengthen and clarify their position on the issue. According to Lawrence P. Scott and William M. Womack, authors of Double V, The Civil Rights Struggle of the Tuskegee Airmen, Base Regulation 85-2, which mandated segregation of officers by unit, um, which in effect meant race, was posted around the base. Selway ordered all officers, black and white, to appear individually before a board and attest that they were fully that they fully understood 85-2. All 292 white officers signed the regulation, while 101 of 422 black officers refused. A few of the trainee officers signed it as written. Some signed it, striking out the words and fully understand and others signed it but wrote endorsements claiming it was racial discrimination, Selway wrote in his report. The 101 black officers who refused to sign were placed under arrest and flown secretly to the God Godman Air Army Airfield in Kentucky, where they were put on temporary duty for 90 days. The three black officers accused of jostling with military police were held back at Freeman to be court-martialed. According to Moy, black officers were still at Freeman, continued to try entering the white officers club when the men approached the club colonel Pat patterson would have would ask who the spokesperson for the group was and all of the members would respond no one a consideration of capital punishment on april 25th 1945 12 days after the arrest the 101 black officers were released with a reprimand on the records and the judge advocate general's office deemed the administrative reprimand adequate punishment because trying the officers on violation of 64th article of war could result in capital punishment, something the army could not politically afford. Capital punishment. Jeez. Oh, Jeez. For trying to be somewhere you're quote unquote not supposed to be. Yeah, that's a lot. That's excessive. And I mean, like, I just can't. Like, that's. The segregation thing just really gets under my skin. But anyway, so yeah. following the airman's release, George S. Schuller, a columnist for the African-American Weekly Pittsburgh Courier, praised the decision, it is impossible for any man to be a first-class officer if constantly forced into a second-class position, he wrote. It is a pleasure to note that the War Department has had the good sense to release these young men to duty. The three black officers charged with jostling in, uh, in the white officers' club stood trial. Two, Martin Thompson and Shirley Clinton, were acquitted and fined. Roger Bill Terry, the third officer, was represented by the future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. A University of California, Los Angeles graduate, Terry was court-martialed and acquitted on the charge of disobeying an officer but found guilty of jostling. Whatever the fuck that means. That makes me laugh, jostling. Anyways, giving a $150 fine, he received a dishonorable discharge in November 1945 with a reduction in rank. And uh, it goes on because in 1995, President Bill Clinton pardoned Terry and restored his rank to second lieutenant and refunded his $150. See, it's never too late to make things right. Goodness. Yeah. At the same time, Clinton removed General Hunter's reprimand letters from the permanent files of 15 of the 104 officers charged in the protest. The Air Force also promised to remove the reprimands of the other 89 officers once they were filed. Terry, who went on to earn a law degree and work as an investigator in the L.A. District Attorney's Office, never got 
to fly overseas during World War II, but he did witness how the 477th Bombardment Group's nonviolent direct action tactics at the Freeman Field influenced the civil rights movement where sit-ins at lunch counters and bus stations transformed the American South. We think that it broke the camel's back because they had to recognize the fact that 104 officers were arrested and that they all defied this order and the order was said to be illegal. Terry said in an interview for the National Park's Tuskegee Airmen Oral History Project, we feel, and I think I speak for most of the guys, that it was our advantage that we gave to the Negro people that there would be no discrimination in the Air Army Air Force from that time on, at least officially. In 1948, President Harry Truman issued Executive Order 9981, ordering all U.S. military forces to desegregate. So that answers that question. Um, but that's only in one instance. Still unsure how people were actually treated, regardless of yeah, being I'm desegregated. Sure. Yeah, <sighs> Always looking for a loophole to be fucking racist. Back to uh, 1957. Black voters are able to vote, vote. However, they are given literacy tests, especially in southern states, um, and they made it almost impossible to get to vote. The questions were misleading and confusing, and uh, President Eisenhower his administration realized this would become a problem and wanted to minimize tension while committing to the civil rights movement. So on September 9th of 1957, Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which allowed the federal prosecution of anyone who tried to prevent someone from voting. It also created a commission to investigate voter fraud. So as I stated in part one, the government can sign these acts into law, but the citizens will react how they please. And this is the year that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was established, introducing King as an activist and advocate for the movement, although he had done that in his churches, but now um, he was a president of the actual group and representing them. So in 1959, King took a month-long trip to India and met family and followers of Gandhi. He wrote a few books and articles during this time. February 1st, 1960, four college students refused to leave a Woolworths lunch counter without being served. They stood their ground, and within several days, hundreds joined in on what is now known as the Greensboro sit-ins. Some individuals were arrested and charged with trespassing, but this caused a boycott of all segregated lunch counters until the owners served the original four protesters. Peaceful sit-ins sprung up in dozens of cities and helped launch the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to encourage student involvement in the civil rights movement. It also caught the eye of young college graduate Stokely Carmichael, who joined the SNCC during the Freedom Summer of 1964 to register black voters in Mississippi. In 1966, Carmichael became the chair of the SNCC, giving his famous speech in which he originated the phrase, Black Power. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. In 1961, on May 4th, the Freedom Riders were seven black and six white activists who got on a Greyhound bus in Washington, D.C. They started on a bus tour of the American South to protest segregated bus terminals. So they had one the case where they didn't want segregated buses in terms of seating, but now the bus terminals were still separate. So it was like scratch one thing off the list onto the next. Very mm -hmm. awesome. They were, uh, they were testing the 1960 decision um, of, I think it's Bobbyton versus Virginia that declared the segregation of interstate transportation facilities as unconstitutional. So with this movement, we see the pattern of what's the problem, how do we peacefully demonstrate to the public it's unconstitutional, and once that gets attention to the point where they uh, can change something, uh, they scratch it off the list, like I mentioned, and move on to the next goal. But they test if the last change was for real or not, so that's what I really like about this. Excellent. So international attention was gained from the Freedom Riders, though, because violence was happening with the police and the white protesters. On Mother's Day 1961, in Anison, Alabama, the bus was attacked. When the bus stopped, a mob mounted it, throwing a bomb inside. The Freedom Riders were attacked and beaten, although they escaped the bus, which was fully on fire, and photos circulated. The group couldn't find another bus driver willing to take them any further. It was getting dangerous. U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy negotiated with Alabama Governor John Patterson to find a driver. The Freedom Riders resumed their journey under police escort on May 20th. Damn. Golly. <clears throat> it's wild because these protesters are 
working nonviolently. They cannot react to people spitting at them, throwing, you know, things at them and being violent towards them. And they just have to not react. And it's just, I, I can't fathom it. The strength to not react is. Right. It really, because I mean, if you really think about it, it, it's easier to give in to frustration and violence, but it's not easy to hold it back and just hold your ground. Um, <clears throat> so, and that that must have pissed those people off because not only are they the ones looking stupid and acting violently, but they're the cops are now coming and defending the the protesters, and it's like, oh, wow, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So funny. But the officers left the group once they reached Montgomery, where a white mob brutally attacked the bus. Attorney General Kennedy responded to the rioters and a call from Martin Luther King Jr. by sending federal marshals to Montgomery. Seeing this progress and then having this kind of brutal attack happen must have been so scary, but also so satisfying. Because with the nonviolent protests, it is clear on camera and in photos the blatant racism driving these people to attack peaceful demonstrations. This definitely made the movement quite powerful. Going state to state in the South was almost like a declaration of these are my rights and we are not afraid. So we are getting closer to the monumental moment of King where he gave his famous speech, but not before more pushback. On May 24th, 1961, a group of freedom riders reached Jackson, Mississippi. Though met with hundreds of supporters, the group was arrested for trespassing in a whites-only facility and sentenced to 30 days in jail. Attorneys for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, brought the matter to the U.S. Supreme Court, who reversed the convictions. Hundreds of new freedom riders were drawn to the cause, and the rides continued. In the fall of 1961, under pressure from the Kennedy administration, the Interstate Commerce Commission issued regulations prohibiting segregation in interstate transit terminals. On August 28, 1963, 200 to 300,000 people joined Martin Luther King on the March on Washington. Other civil rights leaders came and people of all races congregated for this peaceful demonstration with the main purpose of forcing civil rights legislation and job equality. This moment in history is cemented as a propeller of change and motivated the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the act into legislation initiated by President John F. Kennedy before his assassination. JFK is someone we will be learning about very soon, so I won't mention too much here. But Jack and his brother Bobby were huge advocates for the civil rights movement, but not until he saw the violence against the Black community in Birmingham. He had been quiet in 1961 when he was first president, but the Southern protests showing the true injustice, he couldn't stay silent any longer. On July 2nd, the act gets signed, which Um, ended segregation in public places and banned employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It is considered one of the crowning legislative achievements of the civil rights movement. First proposed by President John F. Kennedy, it survived strong opposition from Southern members of Congress and was then signed into law by Kennedy's successor, Lyndon B. Johnson. In subsequent years, Congress expanded the act and passed additional civil rights legislation, such as the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But as the other moments of progress, the actions were met with pushback. Southerners argued the act usurped individual liberties and states' rights, so they fought for their right to be racist and have businesses discriminate against Blacks. Of course. Pretty much. In a mischievous attempt to sabotage the bill, a Virginia segregationist introduced the amendment to ban employment discrimination against women. That one passed, um, whereas over 100 other hostile amendments were defeated. In the end, the House approved the bill with bipartisan support by a vote of 290 to 130. The bill then moved to the U.S. Senate, where Southern and border state Democrats staged a 75-day filibuster among the longest in U.S. history. Uh, I'm pretty sure, I didn't look it up to put it in here, but a filibuster is just when they sit and don't make a decision. They just keep meeting up every day and they don't come to a decision. And it's just a way to prolong the process and maybe uh, get them to change their minds. So annoying. Really? 75 days of that bullshit. So where are we at today? Nope, we're not doing it. Okay, next day, where are we at today? Nope, not doing it. How stupid. So on one occasion, Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia, a former Ku Klux Klan member, spoke for over 14 consecutive hours. What? 
Yep. Oh yeah, he probably had a lot to say about I'm why like, don't, they shouldn't you lose your voice. Fourteen hours? Shoot, I would think consecutive talk. Like I don't, I don't know. The devil never sleeps. Yes, <laughs> uh, that's true. <laughs> but with the help of behind the scenes horse trading, the Bills supporters eventually obtained the two thirds votes necessary to end the debate. One of those votes came from California Senator Claire Ingle, who, though too sick to speak, signaled I by pointing to his own eye. Uh, <laughs> too sick to speak. Speaking about losing your voice. Anyways, having broken the filibuster, the Senate voted 73 to 27 in favor of the bill and Johnson signed it into law on July 2nd, 1964. It is an important gain, but I think we have just delivered the South to the Republican Party for a long time to come. Johnson, a Democrat, purportedly told in aid later that day in a prediction that would largely come true. Ain't that the truth? Pepper heard you. <laughs> and I am currently using uh, history.com for some of this. And it says, did you know President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 with at least 75 pins, which he handed out to congressional supporters of the bill, such as Hubert Humphrey, Everett Dirksen, and to civil rights leaders such as Martin Luther King and Roy Wilkins. Cool. Dirksen. <laughs> I don't know why. Like that. Dirksen is a cool name. That could be a first name. It's a last name. I wonder what they are. I Everett. Me of Dirks Bentley. Who's that? that? Is, hey. He's a country singer, but I wouldn't oh, expect. I, wouldn't, <laughs> I, I mean, I actually honestly thought you would, but I guess not. Under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, segregation on the grounds of race, religion, and national origin was banned at all places of public accommodation, including courthouses, parks, restaurants, theaters, sports arenas, and hotels. No longer could black people and other minorities be denied service simply based on the color of their skin. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act barred race, religious, religious, national origin, and gender discrimination by employers and labor laws or labor unions and created an Equal Employment Opportunity Commission with the power to file lawsuits on behalf of aggrieved workers. Additionally, the act forbade the use of federal funds for any discriminatory program, authorized the Office of Education, now the Department of Education, to assist with school desegregation and gave extra to the Commission on Civil Rights and prohibited the unequal application of voting requirements. Martin Luther King Jr. said the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was nothing less than a second emancipation. The Civil Rights Act was later expanded to bring disabled Americans, the elderly, and women in collegiate athletics under its umbrella. After MLK's I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington, he was a grand-scale activist in the way that the world now recognized him on TV. He was named Man of the Year by Time magazine and in 1964 was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, at the time being the youngest to ever be awarded. However, in spring of 1965, the SCLC and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee organized a voter registration camp, and of course, people came there specifically to ruin it. It was a disturbing and disheartening scene as the world watched their television and saw what was happening in the U.S. White segregationists became violent, and many Americans and supporters from other parts of the country came to Alabama to march in the Selma to Montgomery March, led by King and President Lyndon, Lyndon B. Johnson. Federal troops kept the peace as they marched. Um, so yeah, they were being threatened. It's a five-day walk for... Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, I heard that it takes an hour to drive from Selma to Montgomery, but these groups of activists and allies walked for five days good lord mm -hmm. that is crazy yep um so the previous act had paved the way for two major follow-up laws the voting rights act of 1965 which prohibited literacy tests and other discriminatory voting practices and the fair housing act of 1968 which banned discrimination in the cell rental, and financing of property. Though the struggle against racism would continue, legal segregation had been brought to its knees in the United States. The civil rights movement was a whirlwind of protest and action spread out across our country for almost 14 years. Nonviolence is seen as courageous and efficient. No longer were black people going to accept legalized discrimination, but they would strive for the equality they deserved. Civil rights are human rights. 
More militant groups fought discrimination in their own way, but as MLK continued using nonviolent marches, the radical white segregationists got more and more outraged. In 1962, the fight came back to Birmingham, Alabama, where the Klan weren't taking the new segregation abolishment, and uh, they had not been taking it seriously. So there were protests and, you know, gatherings and mm, probably murders and... uh, Anyways, probably. So the, yeah, I didn't really look into that too much, but Martin Luther King did keep up with every time there was a lynching, every time there was um, protests were injured to the point where they were killed or things like that. He was keeping up with all that. Okay. So now enter the Federal Bureau of Investigation. From 1955, they were paying attention to what the Black community was planning, but not necessarily focusing on the leader of the movement himself. Not until 1962, that is. J. Edgar Hoover was the first director of the FBI from 1924 to 1972. In fact, he died still being the head. For almost 34 years, he headed this department. And if he didn't like you, America probably shouldn't either. So... (laughs) So, um... Bayer Rustin is, uh, I guess, a fr- he's a friend of Martin Luther King, and he introduces a guy named Stanley David Levinson to Martin Luther King, uh, and he's a Jewish lawyer and a public accountant. King took a liking to him and began being advised by him. From 1957 and forward, Levinson would help write speeches, raise funds, and organize events. There was one major problem. Levinson dabbled in communism. Insiders would report. You're going to say witchcraft. (laughs) (laughs) Might as well. Might as well be that. So, with the Red Scare and everything going on, uh, I didn't want to give too much history on the FBI, but the whole point of the FBI was it was created whenever espionage was a thing and we're listening in on the Russians' communications, we're listening in on things overseas that are threatening to our country. However, now I guess people in our country are looked at as possible terrorists. So in these these specific years, in this time frame, um, internal crime and organized crime, so I guess like the mob and things like that, those were being looked at more closely since abroad, the only thing that's really going on is Vietnam, but we've got that under control, don't we? He was dabbling in communism, not really specifically sure like what years or what he did, but that that is on the internet. So if y'all are interested in that, you can go look it up. But I used the Hulu documentary MLK slash FBI and took some of this information from there. And also I, I Googled some stuff. So and uh, at this time, once a communist, always a communist. It was believed that the black community was susceptible to joining communists. Now that MLK has millions of followers worldwide, Levinson being in his ear might be an issue. JFK and Robert Kennedy had MLK's back, but when they hear about Levinson, they warn MLK to distance himself. And June 22nd of 1963, President Kennedy meets with several civil rights leaders, and he takes MLK on a walk in the Rose Garden to tell him people around him are openly communist and he needs to be careful. Um, It reflects on he and his brother, the Attorney General, who MLK is associating with. And after this, he was even openly asked on television and interviews about his ties with communists in the country. And he says he isn't close with them anymore. The one person that he was close with, he got rid of. But um, as we find out, he is still talking with these people. He made a good point on TV about how loyal the black man has stayed to America in spite of their treatment and that uh, they wouldn't be likely to join the dark side like the communists or whatever. They, they have hope in America doing right by them. So this is when wiretapping becomes a big thing, and it was a common practice that the FBI used. Wiretapping and Clarence Jones uh, kept Hoover in the loop. Clarence is also an advisor and close friend to MLK. Around August of 1963, the FBI hears something they can use against him. Martin Luther King at this point has become a moral leader of humanity for the world. His success in the movement has not only grown, but he himself has become a hero to the black community and has gained a lot of support from whites and uh, for his goodwill. According to Hoover, his ability to mobilize and almost command a large number of people with his influence became a threat to the public. He did whatever he could to smear the reputation of MLK and called him a liar. 
So I've said this before and I'll say it again, just because a person does bad things doesn't make him a bad person. Now, of course, there are boundaries for this to be true, but you'll see what I mean in a minute. So Robert Kennedy is the attorney general and the FBI policy on surveillance where they, uh, they have a policy on surveillance where they need permission from the attorney general uh, of the Department of Justice to sur- have surveillance on anybody. He authorizes King himself to be tapped. But the FBI doesn't tell Robert what their plans are. They're just like, well, um, he's still interacting with communists and they're tied to the group, which poses a national security threat. So we just want to uh, do some surveillance on King himself, not the groups that he's in. And in 1964, those monumental pieces of legislation are signed into law and MLK is writing his Nobel Peace Prize speech. He's writing his Nobel Peace Prize speech and he sees helicopters are flying around where he's staying, and they come to inform him that Hoover had um, spoken at a women's organization telling them that MLK was the world's most notorious liar. And he's like, what? Yeah. See, no one one knows what's going on, but these helicopters flew there specifically to – because, like I said, Hoover's an important guy, so if he's going to be addressing – organizations and and spreading information like this they went and let him know and uh he was he was confused he was like what are you talking about then martin luther king went on tv defending himself and met hoover in person with a few of his advisors and they met up in hoover's office um i don't think there were cameras in there or i'm not sure what was said but when he leaves the office he's questioned by reporters on the way out and he mentions that the conference was friendly it was a success in terms of developing some understanding, he says. Mm-hmm. But they were just pretending, and we don't find this out till later, that mm-hmm. things did not go well. And it was a polarizing and controversial time to be a fan of Martin Luther King. The public heard all about it, and just like today, the haters did not back down. A public opinion poll showed that 50% of the public sided with Hoover, and only 15 to 20% sided with King. People who were then again, it's like who did they ask? Like what areas did they go to? Hey, I don't know. (laughs) Bias, but they want everyone to know. Like, hey, these people. There's only a little bit of people that care about MLK right now. So, anyways, yeah. So we'll never really know like what the bias is, but that's the data that was collected. Um, So people were for Hoover and they said things like they didn't trust Martin Luther King. They thought he was too smart or he thought he was too smart and he kept disrupting the peace. So that's how certain people saw it. (laughs) He was disrupting the peace. Anyways, so the FBI was promoted um, constantly during this time on TV, like join us, I guess they were just trying to really show like, we need this group to keep us safe. We need uh, more people to join us, you know? So there were commercials and stuff making the FBI important and heroic and the rise of the G man led the public to believe that the FBI was good and necessary for the safety of the country. A G man I learned was um, slang and it's an FBI agent or political detective. Mm-hmm. I've been watching um I don't know if you've seen the show. I think it's on fuck, I don't remember. Uh but it's called The Rookie and they have a spin-off called The Rookie Feds and it's mm. um what the hell's her name? Hold on. Uh did you ever watch Reno 911? <laughs> no, I've seen clips. <clears throat> okay, so there is a black lady in that Nisi ah, Nash. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um she's the main character of it. And her dad is very uh anti like police, anti law <laughs> enforcement, and um he's like a advocate or whatever for it. But um he was like super against her being in the FBI and he calls her a G Man all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's so funny. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a really good fucking show. Well, it's a little bit corny, Ooh. but I actually really enjoy it. We like watching it. But um Cool. I think I like it because I've not ever seen a show where 
a woman is like the main mm. character of like a procedural show, you know what I mean? Right, right. Cool. So yeah, it's pretty good. She's really good. But anyways, oh, yeah, carry I on. Love her. Um <clears throat> so yeah, I didn't know what a G Man was and I looked it up and that's that's what it is. So mm-hmm. what ended up happening was the FBI just collected all this insight on King's personal life. In his home, late 1963, weeks of meetings happened to discuss how to go about exploiting what they've collected on King. They decide to expand the surveillance to bugs, microphones specifically for King to be investigated. The FBI would contact hotel staff and bug the rooms with devices. The monitor... Um, who was going in, they would monitor who was going in and being recorded. During these surveillance events, sometimes there was sexual activity taking place, and MLK was on those tapes with other women. Ah, yes. I knew this. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the FBI tried sending tapes to church leaders and reporters to see if they could destroy King and his reputation, and when nothing happened, they were confused. They felt the fear of a black man's uncontrollable sexuality and deviance was proven by the strongest moral example of a black man. So they reframed their plans. They will do something more shameful than this. So, um, yeah, during this time, the propaganda was that black men are rapists and... I hope this doesn't get like taken the wrong way because this is literally how they were viewed and portrayed in films. Like they're dangerous and women need to be afraid of them. So when they got a hold of this, they were like, Oh, he, he's cheating on his wife. So he, he is that personification of what we're saying, you know, like he can't control himself anyway. And they're like, and even if a man of this stature can do, can do it, then, you know, what are the standards for other black men? Anyways, they took it out of, like out of control. I'm not going to stand up for him cheating on his, on his wife. Like that's horrible, but they had an agenda and that's where this is all like messed up. So King had suspicions that he was being monitored, but confirmation came when he received a package from the FBI. They took the most gross tapes and wrote a letter stating they know what he has done. The letter pretty much told him he knows the best thing to do is kill himself, especially before this gets out, and gave him a deadline. The package was sent to the office, believed to be from Florida. The worst part was that King's wife, Coretta, was the one to open and listen to it. Oh, no. So she called him and told him, what came in the mail, and as a true first lady, Coretta handled this with grace and stuck by his side. However, King is having an internal struggle at this point, and he is afraid of this being exposed. Then JFK is killed. I won't go into detail here because I will be covering this in depth in the future, but um, all the while um, that this is happening, the Vietnam War raged in the background of America's mind. Public outcry to end the war was nationwide, And in 1965, President Johnson had ordered the bombing of targets in North Vietnam in Operation Flaming Dart. It was a retaliation for a raid that the U.S. base in in the city of Pleiku and a nearby helicopter helicopter base at Camp Holloway. uh, There was a three-year campaign of sustained bombing, Operation Rolling Thunder. U.S. Marines then land on beaches near Da Nang, South Vietnam, the first American combat troops to enter Vietnam. At this point, the president is fired up. The determination to stomp out communism was stronger than ever abroad and at home. The Cold War between the Soviets and the U.S. had amped up the fear, and there is more to it, but for time's sake, that's what we need to know. The whole reason behind the war was preventing communism from taking over the region. So southern Vietnam was siding with the U.S., and the northern part of Vietnam were communists, and they wanted to be, I think, nationalists or something. They wanted the whole region to be under one command, essentially. So with some help from South Vietnam, since we were allies, more than 3 million people, over 58,000 Americans were killed, and more than half of that 3 million were Vietnamese civilians. In July of 1965, Johnson called for 50,000 more troops. Um, so he, he also increased the draft to 35,000 each month. So, you know, men would be, you know, waiting and kind of fearful, maybe internally, they had to be brave on the outside, but they would get that draft in the mail, they'd have to go. So Martin Luther King has promised he would take care of our country's injustices and the weight of this struggle was heavy. 
He stayed quiet at the start. It wasn't until he saw images himself of the children and the civilians of the war-torn Vietnam region that he couldn't stay uh, silent any longer. The accomplishments were coming too many and too fast, and the war was something we needed to support. No longer was it a black man's fight. Now they were making it a poor man's fight. The success of other protests made it hopeful. Real change was coming for the impoverished of the country now. So he has a new goal of seeing how poverty, how people are living in poverty. And it's the, like I said, it's the, ne- the next thing on the list. How can we make this country even better? Let's help the poor. <clears throat> so MLK speaks out against the war in August of 1965 and is promptly put into place by hostile allies to the Democratic President Johnson. So now the Democrats are turning against him because we need to be under one united front when it came to the war. And he remains silent on it once more after being silenced. For almost 18 months, he's quiet about Vietnam. And early 1967, he's waiting for a flight um, in Jamaica or to Jamaica, and he sees photos on a newspaper. He took his... um, nonviolence concept, and he hoped to apply it to anti-war in this country. He knows this will break him apart from Johnson, who has who he's been allied with for so long, but he goes on uh, the record anyway at Riverside Church. I'm going to go to the Stanford EDU encyclopedia for this part. Um, Beyond Vietnam, April 4th, 1967, Martin Luther King delivered his seminal speech at Riverside Church condemning the Vietnam War, declaring, my conscience leaves me no other choice. King described the war's deleterious effects on both America's poor and Vietnamese peasants and insisted that it was morally imperative for the United States to take radical steps to halt the war through nonviolent means. King's anti-war sentiments emerged publicly for the first time in March of 1965 when King declared that millions of dollars can be spent every day to hold troops in South Vietnam and our country cannot protect the rights of Negroes in Selma. King told reporters on Face the Nation that as a minister, he had a prophetic function as one greatly concerned about the need for peace in our world and the survival of mankind. I must continue to take a stand on this issue. Um... So he took some serious stands on the issue, which upset a lot of people. Why did the government not fucking fall apart during that time? Like, right. Like, or not even during that time, like after people found out that the Vietnam war was pointless, like there was no Mm -hmm. reason to be there. Why did nobody, why did like a fucking light bulb not go off? in people's heads like society and mm-hmm. they were like oh well fuck he was right like there everybody was right that was saying we shouldn't go fuck uh, the government like why did nobody why did that not happen right oh yeah so um, like in large numbers <laughs> to cut it short i guess he was killed is the is the bottom line is when he was killed the documentary shows how his followers were completely lost. Like mm-hmm. after he had revealed everything, mm-hmm. they they fell under the pressure of not having a leader anymore. So I think that, that it's like that for a lot of people where we rely on someone to take the lead because mm-hmm. it's a lot of responsibility and it's mm-hmm. a lot of consequences. Um, and I think it goes more into like the socioeconomics part of it that I really am not informed on, but I'm pretty sure that the socioeconomic situation is really what trapped a lot of Americans into being forced to believe in the American dream and that it's what's best. Like, sure, we're throwing a lot of money and human bodies to another country for no reason, but it's part of the American dream in some way, shape or form. And these organizations like the FBI and the CIA and um, the government in general and these administrations were powering out all of this propaganda and, and making us, you know, feel like we should be proud to right. be in control. And at this point, it is really looked at as we were the greatest country. I know a lot of people, this is going to upset people and I might cut it out. I might not. But um, a lot of people currently still think that our country is the greatest country. And yeah. Delusional. I, right. Right. Um, 
because that would just mean that w- there's nothing else to fix. And that is simply not true. Yeah. So, um, so that's, that's that, but I would need to know more of the ins and outs because like I said, these groups will find loopholes and they'll be like, well, without us, you know, where would you be? Mm-hmm. So, um, make it super <clears throat> difficult. Um, so, um, conspiracies drive me insane. They really, I mean, oh man. It's not even like a conspiracy, like I don't, is this a conspiracy? Mm-hmm. Like, is that what this is considered? Um, by definition, yes, mm-hmm. but I guess that would mean there's a lot of conspiracies that are just not looked at as conspiracies because they bring out something more positive. So I don't know. I think you're right. Like there, there's in general, a lot of conspiracies. It just depends on how they frame it for us to accept it. Right. Um, so yeah. Um, doing the math now, you can see where the priorities were skewed then and now. The money was going to war abroad when the U.S. needed to focus on poverty here. Now, this really upsets the opposers of Martin Luther King, and they used photos of him pictured with communists and considered him an enemy. No longer was it just racist areas spreading negative news about him. It was the general media. So people are turning on him now at this point as uh, he's not a patriot. He's going to cause some kind of uprising against our administration, who is pro-war, although they are Democrats, um, they are pro-war. So President Johnson had been made aware of what the FBI had collected on him, but didn't entertain any ideas. But now that MLK gave him a reason to lend Hoover his ear, um, it seemed almost like he was like, okay, y'all are going to do what you're going to do. This guy is kind of getting dangerous. Um, So they made it seem like MLK had a lot to gain by joining the communist agenda and turning his back on his country. And I don't know where it comes from thinking that a certain political ideology is what it is when in general, nobody wants to be poor and nobody likes to see people struggling in poverty. So that's a general human instinct to feel, but they are lining it with this communist agenda. So it's working out perfectly for them. It is that the mm-hmm. whole like just mm-hmm. racists are like fucking. Oof. Oh my god, I my brain is that, like. I know, I hadn't even thought of that. That um, communists could easily, or you know, it was thought that they could easily be like, hey, just you know, your someone, your country care about you. Yeah, you should you can join us. Someone a communist for. Mm-hmm. Wow, and then because they've already made the word communist. Mm-hmm like a fucking synonymous with mm-hmm. bad shit like not oh my god yeah oh yeah and you will find online these interviews of people saying untrue things and even now yeah when they're questioned about you know political figures that they hate oh man they hate them they're gonna say all of these things um So it is just very, very frustrating. And at this point, the Black Panther Party is gaining momentum. And Hoover says that they are the biggest internal threat. Um, And the Black communities and low-income areas are starting to be monitored to see how groups operate. And they would often have to hire Black people to go behind the scenes since they wouldn't hire them to be actually in the FBI. They would just hire them to, like, inform them. Isn't that so rude? Yeah, what the and because they can't afford things, they're going to say yes. Isn't that sad? Oh, you know what? <sighs> I've realized this before. Now that I think about it, I've watched, there's been several movies that I've watched mm. that mm-hmm. have like hinted at stuff like this. Like, mm-hmm. and they're not even like um, serious movies, like they're satire or whatever. And But the fact that it's mentioned, you're like, hello, did anyone else hear that? Yes. And I'm like, what? Yeah, how are we okay with this? It's yeah, weird. It blows my mind. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, so we're going to go into that a little bit more. And specifically like with the Black Panthers, um, when I discuss Fred Hampton in the future, so they wouldn't hire Black people, but they would use them as informants. And Fred Hampton, they made a movie about him called Judas and the Black Messiah. I've not watched it. I don't even think I've heard Man, it was good. It was good. But it's about him and how they hired an informant, a black man, to join, you know, because 
they then they pretty much had him say like I want to join you guys I want to help you guys and all he did was inform them on how to kill him so they ended up killing him but anyways counterintelligence uh, the counterintelligence program was a secret group dedicated to disrupting progress of those they monitored by spreading rumors and things like that. Photographer Ernest Withers was an African-American informant. He was uh, he was always taking photos at MLK events, and he took photos of the most profound moments, and yet he would help the FBI. Then there was James Harrison, who was in the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he specifically joined because he was hired by the FBI. And he was a paid informant and it was efficient and it was super internal. So they realized that that was the best way to do it was to find a black person willing to lie and um, pretty much betray the progress right. uh, to work for them. So those were, and those who were suspicious of these people that would randomly join, like they're, they're like, I've never heard of you. And why are you interested in joining us now? They were suspicious of those groups and they warned Martin Luther King, not to talk too much to like new people, like, okay, mm-hmm. be careful. Um, and at this point, Martin Luther King had a new mission, which was solve poverty issues in America. And I'm going to take it over to Britannica, Britannica.com. Um, so the Poor People's Campaign is also called the Poor People's March. It's a political campaign that culminated in a demonstration held in Washington, D.C. in 1968, in which participants demanded that the government formulate a plan to help redress the employment and housing problems of the poor throughout the United States. Um, So in November of 1967, civil rights leader MLK and the staff of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference met and decided to launch a poor people's campaign to highlight and find solutions to many of the problems facing the country's poor. The campaign would lead up to a poor people's march on the country's capital. So they were really excited about this. It was a very powerful mission that they had, and it scared the people once again because This frightened the president because this could be a threat to the Capitol. Empowering a group that outnumbers you scares you, doesn't it? That's what I want to (laughs) say. So MLK announced his wish to unite minorities to solve this problem of poverty. So what does the FBI propose? Now, it's uncertain until we have this information for ourselves. And um, I made a mistake by saying these tapes are already declassified, but they will not be released until 2027. So we have a few years to go. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's it's rough. But as far as we know, this is what we know. So in late March of 1968, the indictment document of MLK is reconstructed and they add in a rape participation allegation. I'm sorry, a what? Yep. They add in a rape allegation. Okay. So, um, so yeah, specifically in his speech, when he's discussing this poor person's campaign, he shouts out, hey, Mexican-Americans, hey, Indian-Americans, hey, Puerto Ricans, you know, whoever doesn't feel like they are um, successful in being equal in this country, uh, let's get together and let's, let's make something happen here. So that's when the FBI decides to... Um, indict him, not only indict him, but reconstruct what they already have on him to make it even worse. And so that's when they add in the rape participation allegation. What the fuck? <clears throat> Just to, oh my God, I can't, oh my God. I know. And if it's, I don't want it to be true. And I'm sure a lot of people don't, but if it is, my question is, they knew about this and didn't think that it was urgent. But back then, I'm sure sexual harassment and rape, it was all just all one and the same of like, oh, well, she's just a girl, you know, like we do what we what we please with our ladies. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just shove it under the rug, you know, don't just kind of turn a blind eye to that part. Um, so that was weird to me, if it is true, um, that they just didn't think that was bad initially. Um they just kind of kept their cards hidden. Of course. Um, 
The document reads that he was present at the rape of a female parishioner by a Baltimore minister, and he looked on and laughed. I somehow, I don't Mm-mm. see that, but okay. I don't want, that's the thing is like, I don't, I don't know if it's because I don't want to think that this is true or like, I don't know. Cause I don't want to be gullible right. and believe it, but I don't want to be gullible and not believe it. So I don't know. Um, so yeah, so it was on audio. So how do they know this? Like, how do they know he looked on and laughed? Exactly. Like, or that it was him. That was his laugh. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. Um, so the document has handwritten annotations, and on top of that, Maybe if the FBI was, was listening, what? I feel like the situation could be real, but I don't think it was him that was there. You know what I mean? Mm, right. I mean, it is just audio, so at this point, they could. Say whoever is whoever. Yeah, exactly. So because okay. I doubt he uses his. This is going to sound so messed up, but I doubt he uses his like speech giving voice during right. activities <laughs> like that. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> it's not. It's not funny, but also it is kind of funny. Voice. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> voice. Uh, he does have a very recognizable voice. I don't understand. <sighs> I don't get it. Yeah, it's horrible. So, um, so yeah. Oh no! What is that from? That sounds something familiar. Uh, Elroy's from Friday. Next Friday. Oh jeez, Uncle. Oh Jesus, Uncle Elroy. Elroy. You can always smoke with your Uncle Elroy. I'm your Uncle Elroy. He's great. Oh man, that's a great movie. <clears throat> Love how that came out at the worst possible part. But anyway, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> but Jesus, but yeah. So they they pretty much were kind of staging this and writing these annotations on this document with the audio. And so yeah, they tried to say that he looked on and laughed. So that counts as participation. I guess he also didn't stop the rape, so that would call his character into question. However, um, if the FBI was listening and monitoring this event, they could have stopped the rape, but they were too concerned with gathering the worst information and as much of it as possible. Mm-hmm. So did it happen, and why didn't they start with that? So like, they didn't start with like the biggest cruddiest thing that they found on him they just kept it in their back pocket and in those days they they i guess they might have just not cared about women they just were like oh it's just a rape you know that happens all the time yeah especially then jesus they're like Mm. yeah not a big deal yeah okay so Mm -hmm. that's that's really what i want to know is like if it happened like what the hell so the idea of this happening is sickening and if it were true it would definitely have altered his image in this country while putting this scheme together, Martin Luther King is assassinated, interrupting this plan. And this would not come to light until the FBI gets investigated for investigating MLK and some misconduct comes to light. And they're like, y'all have been listening to him this whole time? Oh. So that's when more people learned that, they were, that he was being investigated years before he was killed. So that also kind of makes them look like they were involved, which causes the FBI to put more effort into trying to find who killed him. Right. So it's all going hand in hand. And um, I'm going to have to stop there. To prevent overshadowing what we learned today and to keep my brain organized, I will stop here, which means, yes, there will be a third part. I do not want to rush through this, so I hope you're not tired of me yet because this is a wild three segments. It Next time. Wild gosh. No, but honestly, ugh. So next time I'm going to wrap up with discussion on what happened, who did it, and what the conspiracy actually is. And once again, thank you for your patience and your interest in history. Remember that we must learn about it if we want to prevent it from happening again. And yet, as we have seen, certain lessons have not been learned. Lordy. Mm -mm. And I kind of wanted to mention this. I don't know if anyone took it this way, but I don't want to act like I'm speaking for the black community. I am just simply, you know, shining a light on what has occurred. And I right. did my best to try not to completely skim over anything, 
but also I did not go into depth. So if there is anything else, y'all can always ask a question on our Instagram posts, or you could always ask me a question on my DMs, um, and I will do my best to try to answer it for you. Um, so yeah, it it's wild. And the Unsolved Mystery episode, we're going to discuss it next time because it has to do with what people think happened to Martin Luther King the day he was killed. And um, what else? There's a, oh yeah, that BBC documentary who killed Martin Luther King. So I'll be rewatching that so I can hit a few more of those points. And yeah, if there's any questions, I will do my best to answer them next time around. Um, do you have any questions for me? I don't. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Comments, sure. concerns? I will say that that was nicely done. I feel like the way you've organized it, it, it it's keeping it like interesting. You know what I mean? Thank goodness. Yeah. I, I, okay, because. Like a lesson to me. Thank goodness. I, I just know that jumping from all the dates and stuff, I just don't like to interrupt the historical events with specific like other things that have to do with a completely different topic. So I just mm-hmm. tried to sprinkle in what I could. So I'm glad that it's not confusing. Thank yeah. you. I'm glad. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, Perfect. Um, all right. Well, guys, that concludes part two of Martin Luther King Jr. And we have part three coming up next week. And what else? Uh, make sure you give us a follow over on Instagram and on Twitter at G-I-M-M-E, The Creeps. Don't forget, we have a Facebook group that you can now join. We will be posting over on that and uh talking with you guys whenever you guys have something to say so head on over there don't forget we are always accepting stories in our dms and we are more than happy to read them on the podcast yeah thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you next week so did we give you the creeps